Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Hey Dykes, how's it going? I hope everybody is having a great and gay spring. A few things I want to mention. First off, I'm going to be at Girls in Wonderland this year. That's right. Of course, you knew it was coming. But this time, other than just getting a little too tipsy in the pool, I am going to be performing on the comedy night and opening for Sydney Washington, who is a Pascus of the pod and has performed on a lot of our Diking Out live shows. So very excited about that. That's going to be June 2nd in Orlando. Uh, if you live in Orlando and you're not going to any of the other Girls in Wonderland, land events you can still come and just get tickets for the comedy night but you should also go to the other events because it's such a fun time um i'm gonna be there Celia's gonna be there with me and i really cannot wait it's my favorite party of the year Speaking of past guests of the podcast, this one's a throwback, but uh, in the first year of Diking Out, one of our guests was a good friend of mine, uh, comedian Liz Glazer, and Liz is a terrific human. She's so funny. I absolutely love watching her perform, and her album, her comedy album, came out this past week. It's called A Very Particular Experience. It's about dealing with grief. Uh, she's married to a, a rabbi and they um, went through this whole journey with trying to have a child and uh, it's really a great great album I recommend listening to it support queer women comedians please purchase that on iTunes uh, I think that's the best place to get it we want to keep it at number one it's at number one right now again that's Liz Glazer and her comedy album a very particular experience Okay, so the episode that you're about to listen to, it is not a diking out episode. It's not a re-release like we've been doing. Instead, it's an episode of a podcast that I love so much, and I think you're going to like it too, which is why I am placing it here. This episode in particular has to do with, it might have been one of my last gayest things was me just stalking the social media of Jen Tullock, who is a queer actress who I'm such a big fan of. She's so talented and very funny uh, in her personal social media as well. And this interview delivered everything I could hope for and things that I didn't even expect. Uh, the podcast is called You Might Know Her From. It's hosted by Anne Rodman and Damian Bellino. They are big Elward fans. On the podcast, each episode, they have a different actress that they interview. And if you go into the archives, there are a bunch of people from the Elward, uh, including Sepide Moafi, including uh, Laurel Hallman, Rachel Shelley, just a lot of great Great actresses and also queer actresses. So I highly recommend it. Uh, listen to it here and get a feel for it. But I truly just this interview with Jen Tullock made me so, so happy. Enjoy. <laughs> 
I'm Jen Telic, and you're listening to You Might Know Her From with Anne and Damien. Damien, I wanted to check in on you emotionally because a big thing was made like Instagram, Twitter, TikTok public. We knew it had already happened, but... It's of course that Matthew Lawrence and Chili are full on embroiled in like a very cute family romance. A family romance? I mean, the video was like Chili hanging out with the full on Lawrence brothers who are very online. Yeah. Together. They, like as a trio, they're very online. Yes, Chili is basically acting like she's on the set of the 90s sitcom Brotherly Love. She is dancing <laughs> in like a ring around on the rosy <laughs> with. Fucking Joey Lawrence and Andy Lawrence. And I actually was charmed by it, but yeah. also horrified. No, I know. I was like, I just couldn't believe that of all people, Chili like entered into this relationship with, I mean, it's sort of sweet. It's like kind of wholesome, but I was like, I feel like it has to be real because what is the end game otherwise? It's like, it has to be real because, because like, like they're too old for this to be like, what if the publicists were like set, you know, it's like, and also like she seems somehow like her star was bigger and brighter at the peak of her fame and she still feels semi-relevant because like TLC is an iconic yeah. group. Yes. He <laughs> is not and right. was not that. I love him yeah. but like I don't he's think He's like an he's... iconic 90s heartthrob. Yeah, but he's like not leveling her up. You yes, know what I mean? exactly. So it, like why would she Why would she do slumming? this? <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. She's eaten Cheryl Burke's leftovers <laughs> for what? For what? I'm glad to hear that you're handling it well. Hello, hello, I am handling it well. Welcome to another episode of You Might Know Her From. With Anne and Damien. We're so happy that you found us if this is a, your first time listening or that you're back. If you're, this is your first time listening, yes, that is my dog sneezing, vomiting, barking. <laughs> She's not full on vomiting. Drinking She's... water in the background. We're all very allergic. This is our podcast where we, longtime friends and collaborators, meet. We talk about pop culture going-ons. We talk about the things that we're loving, that we're hating. And then, of course, we interview an actress that we love right in the middle of it all. While we're on the ooh on the TLC, Matthew Lawrence, Cheryl Burke tip, thank you so much for alerting me this morning that Len Goodman, all caps, is dead exclamation. It's really sad. Rest in power. I love <laughs> Len. I, I, mean, I don't know if I loved him, but I am sad. The show is... I didn't know he was sick. I don't know if that was no, public I didn't knowledge. Know I, didn't, I only read the headline and then sent it to you. Thank you. That's all I need because, I mean, hopefully he lived a good and full life. Here's the thing. For an old white British man, I love catching him in snippets. Do you know what I mean? Because I never had to read a full-length interview with him where I had to like understand that potentially Len Goodman was problematic. I'm not saying he is. I'm just saying it's like odds are a white man over the age of 75 in a full-length interview is probably going to say something that I'm not going to like. Here's the thing. When I watch Dancing with the Stars, I'm just watching Dancing with the Stars. And Len Goodman is a motherfucking treat. Yeah, yeah. I I agree. So Laura, I don't know how they're going to fill that hole, legitimately. I think he retired last year, which makes sense uh, because he was sick. But like, I guess I don't know that that was public knowledge. Got so it. So who, does it, been, who was the panel last year I didn't watch? It, it was Carrie Inaba. Bruno and then Derek Huff. Oh, and, and right. Len. They brought and back Len, Derek. And then Len retired at the okay. end of the season. To give us a taste of the former glory, I mm-hmm. see. All right. Well, obviously, we're all in for this season as discussed, but RIP Len. Yes, and because Julianne Huff is replacing Tyra Banks. Yes, we did talk about all of this. And actually, speaking of Julianne Huff, this is where I'm going with this. <laughs> she was, she was, 
Sandy and Grease Live. Yes. And, you know, I have a couple Grease things to get off my chest, if Let's you don't it. mind. Number one being, John Travolta oh made a commercial <laughs> so using the music of, it's like, it's so worse and worse and worse. Like, using the music from Grease yeah. for what is T-Mobile. It? For T-Mobile with... Donald Faison and Zach Braff, both of whom I have. Well, I used to hate Donald Faison and I like him now. And I used to love Zach Braff and I hate him now. That's but either right way, switch, yeah. John Travolta should not How be did he get, slumming with them. I know. Why is I worry that he's got tax bills to pay <laughs> on his like planes and his his Florida McMansion. He's grieving so much. When I look, we watch the Oscars. I have to say, when he came out of the Oscars, I was like, oh boy, what a look. Because I think now that he's gone full bald, I'm very into it. But now what used to be his sharpied on hair is now entered like the facial hair territory. Mm -hmm. So he's got like what looks like sharpie on his face. So, you know, I was like making a few snide remarks as one does with their friends when they watch the Oscars. But then he was out about to introduce the In Memoriam and then he was crying, introducing it because he lost... His wife, Kelly, Olivia Newton-John, and Kirstie Alley, like, all within a very short span. And I just feel for him. And his son. And his son. I just, I really, you know, that we have love for JT on this podcast, no matter what. I don't know what he could do that would make me not love him, but I just love him. And we're talking about a lot of men tonight, but I I don't know why Zach Braff. I feel like Zach Braff must have a lot of money from Scrubs, so I why is he doing it? They both do because of, like, syndication money. Right. And I just think, why on earth... Are you padding your pockets? And and who signed off for Summer Nights? Who signed off for that? It's so disappointing. It really Jim is. Jim Jacobs? What are you doing, you <laughs> motherfucker? I feel really sad still that we didn't see the Grease revival from like 15 years One ago. One of my biggest regrets. Uh, I'm sorry, spiritual Sandy. <laughs> if you know, you know. <laughs> So, Damien, since we were last together, there was Passover, there was Easter. I was on, like, kind of a little solo sojourn for the week of Easter, and I watched the Ten Commandments for the first time, and it's, like, four Did you Have you seen it? Like, when I was a child. Yeah, I know there's, like, a whole community of people and gay people that love the pomp and circumstance of it all, but I felt like it was a blind spot for me. So, you know, every once in a while, I like to spend time remedying my blind spots, and Ten Commandments was one of them. I love that this is also, like, it's very eclectic. It'll be, like, house bunny... That's who I am. I can contain multitudes. What I've been watching so far. So I watched a Waco documentary. I watched a lot of the first season of Succession, which I've somehow avoided this entire time. I watched the Ten Commandments. I read Women Talking, which I really loved. I haven't watched the movie yet. And is there something else on that list? Oh, I watched Hereditary, which I really enjoyed. And then it also brought you back to those message boards about... Tony Collette and Mandy Patinkin spitting on Tony Collette during the wild party, which I I'm on her side. hundred percent. I'm always going to be on Tony Collette's side with regard to that. Also, Mandy Patinkin's been on the record about how horrible he was in his past acting life about how ungenerous he has been. And uh, to his credit, he has somewhat like publicly apologized about it. And I don't know that that absolves anything. Who knows if he made personal apologies, but if you haven't read the page six, please go back and read it now about the wild party with Tony Collette and Mandy Patinkin. Cause it is oh, truly wild. Hereditary, I really enjoyed. I, I I don't know if I'm going to see the new Ari Aster movie with Joaquin Phoenix. My only reason for seeing it would be because I think Parker Posey. Oh my God, I forgot Patty LuPone's in it. Parker Posey was the person I was thinking of. Oh. Um, but I've heard some things that make me think I don't want to see it. So if you have seen it and you think it's worth however long it is, 
Let me know in a DM. I was interested in Hereditary. I thought it was pretty gay. Well, the little sister, the way she tongue pops is just like Alyssa Edwards. So <laughs> that's gay enough for me. That's true. I have been watching the Pink Ladies. What is it called? Rise of the Pink Ladies. I've been watching Rise of the Pink Ladies. That has been what I have been binging lately. And I'm going to say I like it. And it's not good, but I love it. And how many episodes are you in? Because you texted me like 15 minutes into the first episode, which... Actually, I texted you one minute in and I was like, Anne, you need to watch The Rise of the Pink Ladies. I'm watching and I'm into it. And then I was like, well, I'm only a minute in, so I might change. (laughs) And then like 30 minutes and I was like, well... (laughs) And then like the next 45 minutes, I was like, well, okay, it's I... And then I started already rationalizing like the bad stuff. You know, there's like an original music that is like almost all bad okay and it's like trying to be topical and progressive which like in theory i appreciate but sometimes it just feels a little bit like on the nose yeah however i kind of for like at some point forgot that of course it's about the rise of the pink ladies it's about the inception of the quote-unquote girl gang and so the fact that it's sort of like about being women empowerment and like about like the other like everybody in the show is like is like seems queer and also Latinx and I so there's like cruising scenes and there's a structural racism at play it's 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 I'm interested it's just like they're trying but to, it's also light it sort of is like that 90210 reboot which I love meets high school musical which was not for me Same. meets Greece so it's like it is like kind of like knowing like 90210 meets I love musical numbers and I like appreciate in er- that they're happening in earnest on a mainstream platform, yeah. even if they're a little bit hokey and bad. Meets Grease, which of course I love. So like that's the triangle. Is it 30 minutes or an hour? I think it's like 45. Oh, interesting. Okay. So I, I look, I'm obviously going to watch it. So that's queued up for my week. Yeah. Maybe I will watch an episode after this recording. <laughs> Of what? Maybe we'll watch an episode after this recording. Oh, yeah, 100%. 100% we will. I I feel like I was in a phase for two years. Maybe it was coming out of the pandemic where I really only wanted to watch like 30-minute things. Mm-hmm. And it was I was finding it hard to find stuff that was fun, that was breezy. I was not interested in a one-hour drama. And something shifted for me in the last three months. And now I'm like full-blown into one-hour-long dramas. And I have to say that Perry Mason was, like, my entry point for that because I really had just been, like, I don't have the bandwidth to sit for that long. At the end of the night, I just want something light and breezy or reality. But Perry Mason... Once I knew that Jen Tullock was gonna had been cast in season two, I was like, let me catch up. So I watched season one and I loved it. Also stars like Gail Rankin from Glow, who was the wolf. What was her name? Uh, the wolf, wolf girl. girl? She Sheila. Was, Sheila. She was wonderful. I thought she was so good. And Juliet Rylance. There's um, a bunch of great women in the cast, and I just thought it was beautiful and lush and brilliant. And then I got to season two and I was like, this is incredible. So we are very lucky that we got to have Jen Tullock on the show. Today, I feel like our interview with her struck so many notes, so many chords with us where we're like, oh, our Venn diagram is like kicking. And I feel like that is when our juices are really flowing. I think you'll hear all of those points of interest, but we are so excited to have her on the show. We love gay shit and we love Jen Tullick. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. 
Get 15% back at hundreds of stores. And it's all happening this week, May 6th to May 13th. It's the perfect time to shop for everything on your list for spring and summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. I know I'm using this week to stock up on some warmer weather essentials at Ray-Ban and Ulta, and I love that Rakuten even helps me save on travel at sites like Hotels.com. Rakuten really is the best way to shop, and you can save even more by stacking cash back on top of deals. Plus, during Big Give Week, that cash back is bigger than ever. With Rakuten, membership is free, and when you sign up and shop today, you get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of the 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. You might know her from Perry Mason, Severance, Before You Know It, Spirited, Six Balloons, and The L Word Generation Q. Folks, big day for us here because on the other side of the computer is none other than actor and writer Jen Tullock. Jen, welcome to You Might Know Her From. Thank you for having me. I just have to dive right in because I'm very much loving the new Perry Mason on HBO Max. And so for our listeners that aren't familiar with the show, you get to play this character, Anita St. Pierre, who's loosely based on the life of screenwriter and bon vivant, Anita Luce. You seem like us to have a love and respect for old Hollywood and... It felt maybe like you have this sort of like style and dialogue in your bones, but I think you're maybe doing some sort of like 1930s dialect work. So can you tell us how you found Anita's voice? So I found Anita's voice when I was about four. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, To say that I have an appreciation or or predilection for that moment in cinema would be putting it lightly. My parents were very conservative and as such decided early on that my brother and I should only be raised on a diet of films from the 30s through the 50s. Um, I'm not sure why their imaginary cutoff was the 50s. It was like once we moved in to like Scorsese era, it was like, oh, no, 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 that's too much. But the 30s where everyone's a misogynist and an alcoholic, totally cool. (laughs) But I I was raised on all of his old like Claudette Colbert, Mae West pictures. And you know, because I just said pictures. (laughs) And I loved them so much. So and I actually watched the original Perry Mason, of course, made in the 50s, but situated in the 30s uh, when it was on in syndication with my grandparents. And that that voice, that sort of 30s-specific gramophony brass and cadence, I had played before. I started in the theater, and I had done a couple of Noel Coward plays, which even though British were, were also of that time. 
To be honest with you, it was less a challenge of finding it and more a challenge of getting rid of it because <laughs> I think for any of us that had that period in our ear, it was inevitable that we wanted to come in and be like, listen, I'll pay it tomorrow for a nickel today. You know, like we, and about two weeks into shooting, one of our producers came around in the trailer and very diplomatically said, hey, um, so this is just a note for everybody, but we're all sounding a little bit like we're coming out of a gramophone. And I was like, Regina, are you, are you talking to me? And she was like, I'm talking to everybody. And I said, okay, I got it. And to her point, and jokes aside, I think what the show did beautifully was try to find the balance of, yes, of course, there was a different cadence and, and rhythm, of speech at that time, but to situate it entirely in that time, I, it does pull, I think, people out of the story. So we were trying to strike the balance of an attitude and a musicality without it sounding like a cartoon. It's also in the writing. I mean, I got to say lines like, well, howdy ho, while pulling up on a 1933 <laughs> Auburn Botel speaker. So it wasn't like I had to do much, right. much like right. I mean, I think the show really pulls it off so well. It's like really lush, super cinematic. And I say this all the time to Damien, but when it comes to like a period drama on like a streamer, I think the budget is the most important thing because so much shit looks so cheap and full of CGI. And this looks so expensive and so good. And so many of the locations are real and the costumes and the hair are like exquisite. So this begs the question that we ask a lot of actors on our show, which is like, Jen Tullock, which do you prefer wig work or costume work? Costume work. I'm actually not wigged in Perry Mason, and I'm the only. Wait, what? Person, I'm the only long-haired person who is not wigged, which is a, was a request of mine. Okay, that's incredible. The entire hair team just like took a shot of tequila to get through the PTSD. I'm hearing me say that because <laughs> what happened was they they had a wig for me, and when we went in, when we were doing camera tests, it was a beautifully constructed wig. I mean, the hair team, as you've seen, is incredible. But we hadn't tried it on my body, which um, I don't know if you could tell from the Zoom is the size of a Pez dispenser. So (laughs) putting a short haired, very period appropriate bob on a person with essentially no neck didn't end up, I think, giving the sort of live, you know, swan like movements that we wanted. And we sort of looked at each other and I said, yeah, I don't know that this is the right one. And Juliet Rylance, who plays Della, she was like, I don't know. I really think we should use your hair because you've got those curls and let's let's give it a go. And I was like, yeah, cut to me having a two hour earlier call time than everyone else every day. But I loved it because even though the wigs, particularly on that show, are, I mean, impeccably constructed, just like the top of the game, that team. I, as an actor, still know when it's a wig. You can feel it. Mm. It affects the way your neck moves and not to sound like a totally insufferable Daniel Day Lewis about it, but I, I did, I did like feeling like it was my hair, yeah. and because especially at that time, hair was such a to do for women. Mm-hmm. You know, you would get it done once a month and then maintain it, and so I really loved getting to use my own hair. Um, coming home at the end of the day was a bit of a, a bit of a slog because <laughs> we shellacked it to the point that had I been thrown from a helicopter, I would have been saved. Uh- <laughs> it looks so good. It really looks incredible. Yeah. Okay. So Anita is like very unabashedly gay, very confident. So when you cruise her in that like meet cute scene in the powder room, and then you hand her your card, we noticed that you do this thing. You put your card between your index and your middle finger. And then at waist level, you gesture at her very suggestively. Was that in the script or was that an actor's choice? A plus work either way. Thank you. That was not in the script. Great work. It was really good. Very subtle. And they didn't even zoom in on it, but it was really good. 
I really appreciate you talking about. That was the first scene we shot. And as far as Juliet and I together was, were concerned, was concerned. And it was great because the charge of the chemistry between us was so evident early on. So we were both really excited to be like, oh, this is going to work. Yeah. And the director of that episode, a wonderful person called Fernando was like, just go just like your bodies, your bodies are following, I think an instinct we're glad about to just go. But we talked a lot early on, even before we shot about, you know, the queer coding of it all and what any movement or glance in a public space would have to look like. Mm -hmm. And so that entire conversation is brokered by a glance, you know, from the dining room, but even in the powder room, they brilliantly had people walk in and out. So we would sort of had, you know, have to clam up a little bit. So it was like, well, you can't very well put the card <laughs> in front of her face and wave it and say, listen, lady, like, let's go for a cocktail. So we were like, what, what's the energetic hula hoop, as it were, around you as a, as a queer person at that time? So um, I really appreciate you clocking. It was so good. I think that scene in general, just like really such a good queer coded scene, as you were saying. I can't recommend the show enough. I've been telling everybody about it. Thank you. Uh, so something else that's very exciting that you have going on. You're a series regular on Severance, Apple TV's dystopian drama meets dark comedy, sort of, where you play Devin, Adam okay. Scott's pregnant sister. The show is directed yes. by Ben Stiller and Aoife McArdle mm-hmm. and stars marquee names huh? like Adam Scott, Patricia Arquette, Christopher Walken, John Turturro, but then also this ensemble of like improvisers and comedians. So yeah. we were curious watching, like, as an actor coming in, was it difficult for you to navigate the tone of this material considering its genre but then also the tone is like comedic but also not you know yeah I think it was difficult for all of us we've talked quite a bit about this um when we've done press together and I was secretly relieved early on to hear the royal first team as it were of you know the Britishas and say the same navigating the tone was both a challenge and also I think a testament to how brilliant Dan Erickson's writing was and is because it what we didn't have a frame of reference for it. Every time I thought, oh, I we're in a noir or we're in a sort of matrixy David Lynchian, you know, dystopian sci-fi, it would tip ever so slightly to just like a brilliant cerebral comedy, but then it would tip right mm-hmm. back. And I think particularly for me and Michael Turnus, who plays Rickon, because we exist on the outside of Lumen, we agreed early on the, the entire team that the tone would be a slight departure from Lumen because we're outside of that implied culty corporate world. So even though Rick in particular takes himself quite seriously and we're in this sort of intelligentsia of the town of Kier, you know, Devin obviously gets to have a sense of levity and humor with Mark. And so that was really fun for me and Adam. And we're actually in the middle of shooting the second season right now. I, I was at work until the wee hours of the morning it's so nice to be back for a second season in an ensemble because I think to my knowledge, Britt and Adam were the only two that I had properly worked together before outside of Ben and Patricia. So we were all really new to each other. And after doing press and, and a, um, a sort of a dizzying award season together, we got really close. So being back at work now as an actual group of friends is so nice. And there's such a greater sense of, Relax. No, well, I won't say relaxation. It's not a relaxing, <laughs> but among us, energetically, it's there's a shared humor and I think a sense of trust. So that's cool. 
we love prosthetics, and as we mentioned, you are pregnant in the series, or at least you are for like the first four or five episodes before you give birth to Eleanor. What was the most yeah. surprising thing for you about wearing that pregnancy suit? These are the best questions I've ever been asked, and I really <laughs> like them. Um, uh, truly. I, the most surprising thing was, well, before I put it on, I went to, I'm at an age where a lot of my close friends are having or have had kids in the last three or four years. So I mind them egregiously. I went to them. I read all of the books, but I said, look, what are the things you see on television from pregnant people that Mm. signal to you that it's, it's fake. What are the, what are Mm. the red flags? And my best friend, Nora said, Oh, it's the, it's people holding their backs. She was like, that's not a thing. Your back aches, of course, like there's strain, but she's like, it's not the impulse to hold your back. And I said, okay, that's great. And then along that line of questioning, I, I sort of went in with the list of don'ts. But as soon as I put it on, it's heavy. So it's it's breasts and tummy, and you put it on like a bathing suit. It's, it snaps underneath. And by snaps, I mean, the first one didn't snap. So if I had to <laughs> urinate, it was like, good luck, um, which I suppose is appropriate for a pregnant person having to sprint to a bathroom. But what was the most surprising? Oh, I'll tell you what the most surprising thing was. And it had little to do with my actual physical experience. People would offer me their seats on set, like without thinking about it. We would be standing between setups and someone on the crew very sweetly. We'd be like, do you want to sit down? And I was like, guys, this is latex. I'm fine. Thank you, though. (laughs) But then I just started saying yes. Accuse them, yeah. I was like, oh, it would be great. You know what I would love is a seltzer. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Jen, so... You're an out person, you're an out woman in Hollywood, yeah. and you haven't shied away from playing queer characters, which we love. You've also had, as Damien was saying, like a real moment between Perry Mason and Severance. Did you at any point in your career have anybody in your ear telling you that it was like important to stay closeted? And do you find that there are still like surprising conversations about queer identity in the industry? Yes, very sadly. Um, my first manager that I let's see, met when I was 23, was um, a disgusting saliva-pooled behemoth of a man whose name I won't mention, but he has been eviscerated uh, since the Me Too movement. And rightly Mm. so, because uh, one of the first things he said to me, and pardon my creative language, was, you're actually really pretty if you don't dress like a lesbian. And I said, huh, I would say the same Mm. to you. And... (laughs) The, I fired him about a week later because it got worse from there. But more recently and more subtly, I will say, I've had more disappointing experiences while playing queer characters a handful of times where I was so excited to be somewhere where I was playing a queer character. And I've played multiple ones, so I, I won't say where, but and yet still found uh, a sense of trepidation around really leaning into the queerness of the character. And I think the sort of subtext in those situations was, well, congratulations, we let this character be gay, but like, we don't want it to be too loud. And um, especially because you have long hair, which is also a thing. I think like butch phobia and like mask phobia when telling queer stories in media is a real thing. I jokingly call it Grey's Anatomy lesbians because and while I'm very grateful to Shonda Rhimes because she gave us some of our earlier representation of queer folks on a show and that's huge and not to be ignored you know it was the early aughts and so every queer woman had long curling iron curled hair and like a thick layer of mascara nothing wrong with that I I fall under that umbrella aesthetically but I think 
it's been cool and encouraging to me to watch us expand our vocabulary in Hollywood around queerness and gender. Can we ask, you know, we all love old Hollywood here. Like, do lavender marriages, to your knowledge, still exist in Hollywood or like in the industry? I don't know of any personally. I know I know the ones that are rumored. Um, and, yes. I, and I certainly think in those situations, if that's not the case, then how reckless of us as a society to... I, I think a stumble we often have as, as a contemporary American culture is conflating gender and sexuality. So I think mm-hmm. something we did in the 90s that we thought was benevolent was if we met a person who identified as male and they were rem- remotely effeminate, we would go, oh, he doesn't know he's gay. Where now we mm-hmm. go, oh, we know gender isn't the same thing as sexuality. That person can be attracted to whoever they want. It doesn't matter. But I think that contributes to the kind of conversation you're talking about where we're like, oh, well, it must be a beard because, you know, that person is filling the blank. And I, on the other hand of that, have to constantly come out because people assume I'm straight. And I'm by me because I I mean, I'll be on that megaphone until I'm in the grave. But it (laughs) is when I was um, reading with the producers for Perry Mason, it's so it came up organically. They didn't ask me and, and rightly so, but I offered it at some point and I said, Oh, well, I mean, I, I've never been gay in 1933, but I've been gay in the evangelical South. And they were like, Oh, we didn't realize you were queer. And it was cool because I was already in that process to be able to sort of reveal yeah. that information. But yeah, I think that conversation is just going to be ever evolving. And I include myself in the culture at large. That's going to get it wrong in some regard at some point. So I think as long as we humble ourselves and stay nice about it, that we're going to be just fine. Yeah, it's like me drunk in New Orleans talking to like an old dentist who's like, why do you call yourself queer? And I was like, it's not the same anymore. I'm proud of it. It's not gay. It's not queer like gay. It's more expansive. And he's like, all right, kid. I know. I I'm know like, thanks that. for calling me kid. And we're going to be having that conversation with people for a long time, too. I had it with my grandpa sure. recently, who, for sure. to their credit, are incredibly compassionate 90 year old people from the South. And the last time I went to visit them, the first thing they asked me was my pronouns. My grandfather said, we just recently found out about pronouns and we didn't know we've never asked you. And they told me their pronouns. That's huge. My my 90 year old grandparents from Arkansas told me their pronouns um, unprovoked. So I was like, we're going to be okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's really great. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so sort of shifting here now for a moment. Yeah. One of our happiest discoveries, and we always have some when we're preparing for these interviews, but one of our happiest discoveries in this research was the indie Before You Know It. Uh-huh. You co-wrote and co-starred in this 2019 film directed by your frequent collaborator, Hannah Pearl Utt. Yes. And it's this really lovely character-driven family dramedy that also stars Mandy Batankin, Judith Light, and Alec Baldwin about a very like eccentric New York family that lives above a theater. Yes. We loved this movie, and it like really reminded us of the kind of movies that like we used to go see together at the Angelica. The premise is very specific. How did you and Hannah come to find the story, and how many years did it take to get it made? I'll work backwards. It took many years, and really by the benevolent hand of the Sundance Institute, did it become a reality. We we had made a short, Hannah and I, that we wrote and starred in called Partners that was at Sundance in 2016. And then we were very lucky that we got invited to then apply to the Sundance Labs with this feature. We had started writing a version of it that looked a lot different, was called something different. 
But I had the same characters seven years previous to that when we were with waitresses in Brooklyn together. And we both were writers properly. I mean, I, I was writing strange radio plays and uh, Hannah was already trying her hand at screenwriting, uh, screenwriting rather. But we knew we wanted to do something together that we could both act in. And I think it, it was me originally who just said, what if it's a two sisters that think their mother is dead and they find out she is not? Like what, that's kind of a fun jumping off point to have to figure out the algebra of. And Hannah was like, yeah, let's do it. And then from there, we figured out who the characters would be and how that might actually be remotely believable. And it had many iterations over the years. There were versions where the dad wasn't alive. There were versions where the dad was alive and had had a second wife. But by the time we got to the labs, we realized Hannah was going to direct the film and we realized we needed to sort of dry the paint at that point on the story. So that's when it became the version that it is, but it took a long time and a lot of help. Our producer, Mallory Schwartz was incredible. And uh, she actually went through the producing labs. So we were definitely guided by the the maternal hand of of Sundance. Uh, I was actually at the Indie Spirit Awards a couple months ago and I saw Michelle Satter, who's the sort of matriarch of the lab programs, and I ran up and I was like, Michelle, I have to say thank you. You basically jump-started my career. And she was like, oh, well, you're welcome. <laughs> She's the kind of woman that just like always appears in an orb of light, the way Kate Blanchett appears in Lord of the Rings. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, that was the story with that film. You and Hannah are frequent collaborators. So can you say, like, what do you think your strengths are in that creative partnership and what are Hannah's? Are they the same? Are they different? What does that look like? Yeah, they're very different. We don't collaborate as much anymore. We collaborate as friends. We're still very close as friends and we're working on separate projects. And we kind of agreed that we would leave at least a fun, small space open for each other if and when we wanted it in our projects. So Hannah just had a her second feature she directed at South by called Corabora starring Meg Stalter. It's fantastic. And I got to come play a cameo as myself. <laughs> That's the kind of rhythm we found. But when we were working together more frequently, I would say I would focus more on character and Hannah would focus more on structure. Mm. And it's not, it's funny. We've, we've talked a lot about this. It's not necessarily how we both show up in other collaborations or as individuals, but with each other, it was just the way our energies ended up locking in together that way. So towards the end of that, especially when we realized she was going to be directing, because at that point it's inevitable. I think she kind of was at the helm of crafting the final version of the story. The movie's so good. I think it's streaming on Tubi right now. So please go watch it. It's like the yes, cast is incredible. On Prime as well. Oh, on Prime as well. Okay, great. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So obviously we were so delighted that you showed up in the season finale, series finale of the L Word Generation <laughs> Q. Oh, gosh. Yeah. <laughs> so our longtime listeners know that like the L Word is Damien and my is like favorite show. Uh, I didn't know that. Yeah. So we like oh, love it. And also it's insane. So we're always excited. When <laughs> one of our guests has appeared. So for anybody that didn't see the series finale of Generation Q, you play Tina and Bet's wedding planner, of course, like at their 10th wedding, where you end up fucking the resident Lothario Shane McCutcheon in the bathroom. So Jen Tullick, we need to know everything, <laughs> starting with why were you the first person in the history of six seasons of the OG L Word and three of the reboot to tell Shane what an open relationship is? <laughs> you know, okay, I'll, I'll start here. Marja Lewis Ryan, the showrunner, is a friend of mine. I was in a film that she directed for Netflix called Six Balloons with Abby Jacobson and Dave Franco like 
seven years ago. And we became friends then, and I love Marsha. And we had been trying to find a way for me to come play in some regard on the show once, you know, it came back in the first season. But I was, it was always like a scheduling conflict or we couldn't find the right character. And I was actually visiting said grandparents in South Carolina where they now live. And Marsha texted me, can you hop on a call? And I said, sure. And I stepped outside and it was muggy and mosquito-y. And she was like, uh, what do you think about a sex scene with Shane? And I was like, how soon? <laughs> and she's like, it's this really ridiculous character that's their wedding planner. What, do, what would you want to do with it? And I said, what if she's really terrible at being my wedding planner? Like she's <laughs> absolutely abhorrent at being a wedding planner. But it was Marge's idea that while this person was completely inept at doing their job, she actually had a really like measured and well-lived in understanding of her own sexuality and like such yeah. a confidence in her bisexuality and polyamory. So I went and had a really, really fun week with them. We had such a good time together and I ended up getting so close with Kate and Leisha who directed that episode Yeah, that I flew back to LA from New York for the rap party. Because we all just fell in love so hard that they were like, come back for the party. And I was like, I'm going to. Yeah. It was great. And Leisha was, you know, Leisha is such a genius comedic actress herself that she was really wonderful about letting us sort of just play and do our thing. And we knew we had a sink to work with. And we knew that we wanted them to like work up to having sex. And it was Kate's idea to sort of like go up against the wall and have this. I said, what if she's really bad at sex, though? You know, like that's so... <laughs> I think there was, there was like a line, there was a bunch of stuff we couldn't keep, but at one point we had a whole take where we were talking about using the sink, like a, a bouldering wall and <laughs> trying to like use it as leverage, but it was, yeah, it was really fun. And then getting to have, we shot that at a real wedding venue and a lot, most of it we shot on handheld. So it did, it felt almost like we were shooting a documentary because we were sort of just running around with two cameras, grabbing stuff here and there. It was a delight. What a wonderful team of people. I have to say it was really good for my soul to be on a set surrounded by queer people. I had never experienced yeah. that before. And I think Marcia did a beautiful job of making sure th that was the the vibe and um, everybody felt really safe and it was great. Yeah. So how much of that shoot was like shrouded in secrecy since it was like the Tibet wedding? Like, was there like a Eileen shaken come Marja Lewis Ryan NDA? Like, what does that look like? There wasn't surprisingly. Eileen was actually present. Oh yeah. With Cause she's, it, she's like an extra in the, you know, <laughs> and when she came to set, there was like a Royal receiving line and I was towards the end and most everyone in front of me were in the cast proper, were in the primary cast. And so they had met her before and were all saying their hellos. And it came time for her to say hi to me. And I genuflected and then said, madam. <laughs> um, Alicia was like, oh my God, get up. Um, but <laughs> I was just like, I mean, it's the queen mother, you know, like I, I, that the original started airing the year after I came out, I came out when I was 19 and that was 2002. Yeah. So I was just like, listen, I know you've heard this 170 times, but gotta say thank you. I gotta say thank you. I, I was like a baby gay, terrified in my freshman year of college and watching the show made me feel better. Also, I would pose the question to both of you, uh, regardless of your typical predilections, do you think it's crazy that my biggest crush on the show has always been Tina? <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so what's interesting? Controversial. Did you meet Laurel on like on set yes. that you were okay? Yes, I love Laurel. I think she I, was the one I was nervous to meet. It was 
like Jennifer and I bonded immediately. She's amazing. Alicia and Kate, boom, instant friends. We went out for a beer night one. Like, great. It got time to meet Laurel, arguably the nicest person on earth. And I was like, yeah, I think when I watch, similarly, I watch it like snuck episodes, like while I was in college and was like ashamed to be watching it. Not ashamed, like titillated, but also didn't want anybody to see my searches. Totally. But yeah, I think as a kid, I was like, Tina is not for me. But as an adult, I was like, Tina should get out of this relationship. Tina needs yes. to get the fuck out of here. Yes. She should have been with Rosie. She and Carrie could have, you know, like I'm fine with the wedding ending the show. That's fine. Of course, that's how they were going to end a soap opera. But I kind of finally get Tina as a fully grown, like out queer person. I was like, okay, yes. Tina makes total sense now. But now, I love grown but Tina. does neat Tina from okay. the OGL word <laughs> feel right to me? No judgment, Jen. But for me, the old <laughs> Tina who was like an executive, like film executive was not the vibe oops i've shown my type um, <laughs> i was really into jenny so i don't know if that says something oh else you know God. what i mean like not not jenny as a not jenny as a straight girl but like jenny's like insanity i was drawn to that so i mean i was in love with all of them let's be serious and i will say <laughs> my my current love is a beautiful blonde person who <laughs> is like a creative at a at a at Spotify. So I was like, it's, she's not, not Tina. Tina was the blueprint. Um, You've been looking for Tina this whole she's time. She's a lot cooler than Tina because she's the coolest person I've ever met. But um, yes, I, my brother rightly pointed out, he was like, oh my God, you finally did it. I'm obsessed. Um, you manifested this for yourself. I did. I really did. She, I, God, I hope she never hears it. She's going to be like, I'm not Tina. <laughs> she's not. She's her own person. But yeah. Oh my God. Okay. Um, so we know the series. We know Gen Q is over. There's been this talk that like they're going to reboot it and it's going to be like Elward, New York. Is there a part for you in this? I don't know. I you know um, I mean I I don't know. My answer is I don't know. Listen, if it's shot in New York, I'd be tickled because I just moved back. But I am very uh, ex- I don't know. I guess it would I would depend on what they wanted and when they were shooting. I'm I'm right now. I'm back in Severance Land. And then I go into a couple of movies after that and then a play. So hmm. I would, I mean. It'll obviously. probably take eight years for it to get off the ground. So we'll see if you're t- available. Right. So by the time I'm having my 50th, <laughs> I think that, which, you know, what the show did well was we allowed women past a certain age to be sexual. And I'm all about that. So yeah. if they would have my, my haggard old ass back on at that <laughs> time, but I would certainly, I would crawl back. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> You know, L Word fans and like I would say queer fans in general are just known to be dedicated, we'll say. Mm-hmm. What has been your craziest or most most experience with a fan online or in person? Hmm, that's a good question. I I I went to the season slash series finale at Henrietta Hudson, mm. which uh, for those of you who don't know, is a lesbian bar here in the West Village, uh, very near where I live. And a couple of the cast came, Jordan, who plays oh, Angie. Such a good actor. Who I, oh my good, yeah. God, she's an incredibly talented actress and just a really cool person. We had similar upbringing, so we bonded very quickly mm. on set and she's become a friend in real life. I love her. But we went with some of our crew to Henrietta Hudson. So th- that was a funny night. To, to be there and have people be like, oh, you're... Because I don't often... Um, people don't often approach me in person from severance because I look so different yeah. in real life. I Normally, I have giant curly bangs the way I do in the L word. And we agreed early on with severance. We wanted her to look a bit more dour and professorial. So we, we pulled the bangs back and made her 
Um, obviously, look made me look much older, but so it was. It was kind of fun and shocking. Uh, the few times people came up and, and said something nice about the L word, I was like, "You, you know what I look like? It's the bangs." Uh, but I think mostly people were just either super pro Tibet or super anti, and they would be like, oh, "Can't believe you were the wedding planner of the worst wedding of the century," or the opposite. And I was like, "Right, so you do know that that I'm not a wedding planner, but." Um, <laughs> Yes, they are very dedicated and we love them. It's cool that her name was Kimmy, too. It was also like a nice cherry on top. Somehow that made it feel like, oh, yeah, of course. Kimmy, I know. That was, I I think, I don't know if that was Marja or Alicia, but Kimmy. I mean, no, it was Marja. Yeah, go for Kimmy was a line (laughs) we we all said on set pretty, pretty frequently. All right. Gentolic. We have now entered the part of the show that we call... Rapid fire. This is like rapid fire oh for me God. and Anne because this is basically like us throwing everything else at you at rapid speed. Okay. You can take your time if needed. Okay, I'm ready. Okay. So, as mentioned, like us, you are a fan of old Hollywood. Yes. Who is your favorite old Hollywood lesbian, bisexual, or queer woman? I can give you Marlena some names. Dietrich. Who? Marlena Dietrich. Marlena Dietrich. Okay, great, 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 um, great, 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 great. <laughs> Okay, Jen, you're credited as having done additional motion capture on the video game My Red Dead Redemption 2. (laughs) Oh, that is a deep cut, (laughs) y'all. Okay, I have to be honest, I have never played this game myself, but my bosom friend Sarah Park said, look, oh my God, she's our age and she did motion capture for this video game. (laughs) Please ask her about it. So did you have to wear a mocap suit and tell us everything about that strange and exotic practice? I did. I wore a full mocap suit. I was one of two women in that cast. The story of that particular version of the game is situated in the wild, wild west. So as you can imagine, um, I didn't have a lot to do as a person with ovaries other than play a saloon sex worker. I was playing a sex worker who I think it's eventually strangled. That job happened pre-Me Too. And I have absolutely no qualms about telling you that it was run by a bunch of men. And it certainly felt like it. But I, the, the thing I enjoyed about it was the actual mocap bit of it. So that suit is calibrated with a bunch of tiny motion sensors. And then you have a helmet with an arm that swings around your face, that puts a camera on your face, that moves. I'm sure you've seen videos of like Benedict Cumberbatch doing it or Andy's uh, Sedaricus, Sedaricus. That guy. Andy um, Sedaris. Andy Serkis. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, that incredibly talented actor whose name I just butchered. But that part was really cool because you do, it does affect the way you move. And because we were in the wild, wild west having to simulate hoop skirts, it was like you have a helmet on with a giant like jib arm on it while pretending to be in a hoop skirt. So that bit was really fun. I think playing the receiving end of blatant misogyny for a full shoot, I didn't love. Yeah. (laughs) Sounds traumatizing. Can I ask, like, did did you have to, like, act, enact a death scene? Is that, like, part of the video game experience? That sounds awful. I never actually considered it. I'm pretty sure I was drowned in a well. Oh, my God. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm I'm pretty sure I'm past the statute of uh, limitations with that NDA. But, yeah, the game is out. I think I'm allowed to talk about it. But I, the other actress and I spoke at length about that. It was like the guys got to run around like shooting guns and and drinking beer. And we were just like, yeah, uh, thanks for coming to the saloon. What can I do you for? Uh, (laughs) 
So it was a wild experience. Grateful that I got to do mocap because I'm, I would love to do that again. The rest of it. Yeah. Good to know. Yes. Okay, Jen, I read on the internet that you do a good Joan Plowright. (laughs) It's been a long time. Can you indulge us? Yeah, it was, you know what it is? It's mostly, I think what you're referring to is I used to have a radio show with my good friend, Jess Kiefer, a food and wine radio show. And I would do a segment called Front of House where we would have food and wine industry people submit their horror stories. And then I would read them like over Shostakovich as we said, the Dame Joan Plowright, the Baroness Olivier, which is her (laughs) full title. It was a combination of her and Dame Judi Dench. I need to be clear about that because it is an um, it was basically just like sort of going up and down like this, and you know, like <laughs> so very, very ho. Oh, because Joan back in the day, the Dame Joan had that sort of like warbly, like yeah. help with your puberty thing. Um, <laughs> so yes, it, it was it was a generous essaying of Joan. <laughs> I have other impersonations that are actual impersonations. <laughs> I, I, yes, I cannot tell a lie. My Joan is bad. Have you seen tea with a Dame? Speaking of both of them. Are you kidding me? I've seen both the British and the American version, and they are cut differently. <laughs> that is a okay. That's important. Thank you. I will check that out. Mm-hmm. I think I've only seen the American version. Mm-hmm. Okay. Jen, you've been a New Yorker for years, but now, of course, you spend a considerable amount of time living in LA, where the Scientologists play. Yes. You were raised evangelical in Louisville, Kentucky. Sorry, Louisville. 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 Yeah, swallow that old. You just got old. Sorry. Okay. You were raised evangelical in Louisville, Kentucky, yes. and even went on a missionary trip to Africa while in high school. Oh, so- yeah. <laughs> it's my turn. <laughs> right. So can you tell us what you make of Scientologists and how, if at all, do they compare to evangelicals? Hmm. I don't know enough about Scientology, like the actual belief system, to fully comment it's also become very important to me as someone who deconstructed from the evangelical church, not to make assumptions about other belief systems, because as someone who cannonballed out of that community and did it, did so very loudly, I think I also overcorrected for many years and painted them all with the same brush and was like, they're all terrible and they're all homophobic and they're all fill in the blank. And that isn't true. I'm not speaking about politics because that I don't have as much generosity around. But people of faith generally, as someone who was harmed by a faith community, I left and was like, all of you suck. And as an adult, I have tried to find my way back to having some more grace around understanding the nuance of the human experience. And that has been part of it. So I think to answer your question more pointedly, any cult or cult-like community that requires you to deny your impulse and instinct is harmful. Whether or not Scientology does that, I frankly don't know, because all I know is the like sort of basic gossipy, like Tom Cruise of it all. But if it does that, then I would say, yes, it is very similar to the evangelical church. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I was to be clear, I'm not a Scientologist because I just realized at the very end of that, I was like, did I sound like a Scientologist? <laughs> no. No, I mean, I'm, I'm very fascinated by all of it. And also, I was not raised evangelical, but come from like a very strict Catholic background yeah. relatedly. And just like, I really appreciate the way that you've been very forthcoming. And also, like you said, the way that you've developed grace for where you come from and the people that have inflicted harm, but also 
have a breadth of humanity. So anyway, I really appreciate your candidness around Thank all you. of Thank you. Well, I think they inflict that harm because they themselves have been harmed. And yeah. um, I think that's the piece that we miss a lot. And I actually am making a play currently about this very thing, which is about a queer person who has to go back to her conservative hometown and address the fact that maybe some of her queer narrative has been revisionist based on her own trauma, not her actual queerness, but some things that she claims to have happened because I wanted to take, I, I won't say anything more about it, but I wanted to take a more nuanced look at like the gay and the church narrative. And yeah, I feel like a lot of versions of that, you didn't ask me this, but I'm telling you anyway. No, no, a I'm lot of versions interested. of the like, used to be in the church, now I'm out, are sort of one-sided, which is like, I escaped and now I'm great. And I feel like very seldomly do those narratives examine the actual trauma of the leaving mm. and the grief experience that follows pursuant to the leaving. So I'm working on a story right now that is very emotional and situated in that experience. So I appreciate the question. I'm excited about that. But is that the play that you were talking about that's coming up or this is okay. It is. Great. Yeah. New York, LA, somewhere in New York. Yeah. It'll be here. Okay, Great. Yeah. Great. Okay. We'll be there. What is the gayest, not gay thing about Kentucky? Mm, Derby hats. That's great. Have yeah. you seen a dirty? Yeah, incredible. And they know no gender. I mean, I, I, there are probably a couple of like cigar smoking, like Southern gentlemen that be like, oh, that's not true, man. I, you know, I wear my derby hat and it's a man's hat. And I'm like, it has a bow on it, sir. <laughs> so don't try to unqueer the derby hat. It won't be unqueered. Yeah. Okay. Gentolic last question. Yes. Last year, you showed up as Ryan Reynolds' drunk mom oh, yeah. in the flashback scenes of the Apple TV movie Spirited. So in the first scene, you spit your drink back into the glass mid-dialogue. And in the right. second scene, you were eating a soft pretzel out of like a paper sleeve in a suburban mall in a salt and pepper wig. Once upon a time, Amy Brenneman told us that Brad Pitt is an actor that has to be eating while he's acting because <laughs> it adds to his technique. So please tell us, did you create these very specific character bits or were they scripted? No, the pretzel bit was not was not my choice, believe you me, because of the way we shot it. it you can't really tell based on the final version that ended up cut together. But there were some bits that ended up on the cutting room floor where I am swallowing the pretzel in such a way that it's part of a bit. So I didn't have a spit bucket. So when I tell you that I ate 12 Aunt Annie's pretzels that day in a real shopping mall, Sounds great, honestly. 12 of them. The drink was my idea because I was like, I think I once heard this old recording of Judy Garland that she had made. Do you know what I'm talking about? She got Judy a, speaks. It's really sad. It's so, it's so sad. sad. It's really Wait, dark. tell me it's and the really, listeners. She's like, um... There's no hope and there's no oxygen, she says, of flying in an airplane. But you can. It's like she had a voice recorder in like a hotel room and she had been drinking too much and she records it. That has also heard this. Oh my God, I love it. Judy Garland is my number one. She Uh, is my number one. And I'm like, but it's like pains me. I remember I was like, I know I have to listen to this as a completist, but it's also traumatizing. So I like turned off the lights one night and listened to it. She talks about little Liza. She's like, my guy, I'm very proud of my girl. And you're like, oh. Anyway, in that recording, as you well know, you can hear the ice cubes clinking in her cocktail. And her, I'm assuming, was like a vodka on the rocks. And so I, I had asked Sean, the director, I was like, can I just have ice cubes clinking? And he was like, Adia will love us. Sure. That part was my request. The pretzel, no. Okay. I, I, well we done. thought maybe you had like this, I don't know if it's Meisner, you know, like I'm not an actor, but like I felt like it was like this active thing. Because I also noticed in Six Balloons, you have this bit with like a pig on a blanket where you're like chewing it and then you're like, 
like you keep like sticking your tongue up being like it's gross like and I was like oh like we were trying to like you know find, we always trying to like find patterns and we were like this is a thing this is, that is the- I'm honestly so impressed that is such a specific examination of someone's work I think that my honest answer to that is probably when I'm playing smaller roles and they're letting me improvise some of the lowest hanging fruit is prop work <laughs> when it's a comedy and so it's like, you know, anything that's tactile that I can get my hands on and do a bit with usually is it's probably what that boils down to. Well, we love it. Gentalic, this has been a total hoot. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for saying the word hoot. I adore you both. This was a blast. Folks. <laughs> Jen Tullick has the hots for Tina Kennard. I really couldn't have anticipated a better question posed to us as the interviewees. But then the response was just, I mean, we say this on the show, but I really like Tina has been full circle for me. But I, my, my good friend Katie Shifley also always had the hots for Tina. And I just never understood it. And... I appreciate the honesty. Doesn't Caitlin also? Caitlin Doe. Oh, Caitlin also, yeah, hots for Tina. She loves a blonde. These lo- are people that love blondes, yeah. <laughs> and, and while I respect it, blondes are not my number one. They used to be my number one. Yeah. My mom is a blonde. I loved, I loved Pamela Anderson, Nicole Eggert, Gina Lee Nolan. Erica Leniak. Erica Leniak was not on the short list. D'Erica, what's her face? <laughs> Erica D'Erico. I don't even remember. She was on the hunt for Noah's Ark. No, yeah, that's what it was. I was making a joke, but it really was Noah's Ark. You DM me about it. You want to talk about it? Oh my god, no, Noah's Ark is coming back. I'm so excited that Noah's Ark is back. Speaking of gay shit. Also, Jen Tullick and you having that moment about Judy Speaks. Oh and I my was like, god. I knew like something next level was happening, but was like, uh, wait, what? Hold on, explain it to me. Yeah, and I just it is rare that you meet somebody that has that Judy Garland deep cut. I linked out to it in the show notes. Set yourself up with a glass. If you do not drink alcohol, just maybe take, put yourself in a dark room. I don't know. You just have to like engage with it on a full level. It is sad. I feel like you have to think of it with respect for Judy. There are some people in the Judy Garland community that wouldn't want you to listen to it, but I think it gives you a full picture of like who she is and where she is. But Jen like having that knowledge, for me, it's like the lesbian with a gay male milieu. Mm-hmm. For me, she's definitely into, I feel like we were raised on some similar things. So I just couldn't believe that we were suddenly talking about Judy Speaks as we were on our way out of the interview. Can't recommend it enough. I feel like Jen is like our old Hollywood lesbian of our dreams. And if you haven't watched Perry Mason season two, please just dive in. Matthew Reese, put him on my list of men that I love. I think he's wonderful and he keeps me coming back for more. But the lesbian storyline, I was telling you this this past week, Damien, the lesbian storyline in season two for me makes me feel that sort of giddy sense of like lovey dovey, like closetedness that you Mm -hmm. would see when you would watch a movie that had gay characters on screen where the romance is actually not even the sex scene. It's like really the romance between the dialogue and the longing glances and the like brushed touches and the way that we talk about the cruising scene, which is so brilliantly executed in the show. It's like, it made me feel those feelings of when I was young and watching like something queer happening on screen and I felt private about it, but also like giddy. I, I haven't had that feeling in a really long time. And Perry Mason like 
lit that flame. Uh, yeah, Jen Tullock is just giving us all of the old Hollywood, all of the Marlena Dietrich, mm. all of the Marjorie Maine <laughs> of it all that we want. All that spring Byington energy. So I'm just so glad that we got to talk to Jen Tullock, not only about old Hollywood, not only about the L word, but like, I don't know, it just felt like we got to really break bread with her about the things that we care about. And I think she's going to be a huge star, and I think that just I feel really grateful that we got to spend time with her now. Same. She's a great writer. Go watch Before You Know It, which is streaming on Amazon. Also, Perry Mason season two is now completely done. So for those of you that like to have all of it available before you start, now is your time. Thank you so much for joining us with the great Gentelic. Folks, if you like what we're doing, won't you kindly please leave us a five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts wherever you can review us please leave us one of those obviously the apple podcast app is super helpful but i believe you can leave reviews in spotify now so please make sure you are locked in subscribed sharing these episodes as you get them share them with your friends and please leave us a review five stars and a little something nice really means the world to an independently produced podcast like ours also If you want to hear more about The Rise of the Pink Ladies, if you want to hear more about Anne watching The House Bunny 12 years after it came out, (laughs) follow us on social media. You're going to find my beautiful best friend at Rodeman. That's R-O-D-E-M-A-N-N-E. And you can find me on all of the things at Damien Bellino. And I spell Damien with two A's. Also, please make sure you're following at You Might Know Her From on Instagram. That's where we're going to put all of our pictures and favorite moments from actresses, alive, dead, future hopeful guests. Find us there. Like Damien said, this podcast is independently produced by us, Damien Bellino and Ann Rodeman. We want to thank our consultants at Grumpy Entertainment. That's Jason Jude Hill and Daniel Sears. They are a beautiful duo that help us keep this train on the tracks. Also, all the beautiful editing that you hear on each and every episode of You Might Know Her From is courtesy of the wonderful, the kind, the beautifully bearded Daniel Sears. Also, a shout out to Gang. Gang is three-fourths women. Gang is from Philadelphia. And Gang provides all of the music that you hear underscoring each and every episode of You Might Know Her From. You can download and stream Gang wherever you listen to your music. And if you need to find that link to Judy Speaks or you want to see the John Travolta commercial where he's slumming it with old Braff and Faison, you're going to find it right in the show notes where I keep tabs on everything we talk about. Every piece of ephemera on this show goes into those show notes. Please dig in. I don't know if you knew this. I think I sent it to you, but like Victoria Jackson is QAnon, wild, off the rails, horrible. Mm. I don't know that she was ever going to be my takeaway from SNL in the 90s, in the late 80s and early 90s. But I saw Mark Harris tweet that now that every now that everyone's off the deep end and Jan Hooks has passed, he can reveal that he and Jan Hooks went to town on Victoria Jackson one night years ago when they were both like tying one on and I thought oh I miss Jan Hooks so much and then Julia Duffy of Designing Women and Bob Newhart fame were like in the in the she was like in the comments like oh I heard that same story and then somebody else was like somebody else from everyone was co-signing Victoria Jackson being an asshole yes exactly that don't worry Colleen we're still working on Julia 
Hey everyone, I'm Noah Daniels, one of the hosts of the Real Hauntings, Real Ghost Stories podcast, and I want to introduce you to the perfect podcast to get you through spooky season. Find out what happens when three skeptics who want to believe in the paranormal interview people about their horrifying experiences. Again, that's the Real Hauntings, Real Ghost Stories podcast. Now on to the trailer. I've been warned to not tell this story, but I think because of the way it ends, it's okay to tell this story because some people say that with certain entities to like speak of them or talk about them or in any way portray them as powerful will attract them to other people. The creepiest thing about it to me is a lot of times it would wait for me to notice it. It would just lay its arm out like this and then I'd be like, where is it? Where is it? And then I'd see it and then it would just slither back. Make sure you hear the rest of that episode. It's called Devin's Demons. Again, that's the Real Hauntings, Real Ghost Stories podcast available every Monday everywhere you can download podcasts. Yeah.